Hello, and welcome to Stride and Saunter, episode 163. I'm Kip Clark, and joining me in the studio today, we have another guest, Wade Rausch. Hi, Kip. Hey, Wade, it's great to have you. And today, we're going to be talking about the Great American Eclipse, which I didn't do much to observe or really think much about until after the eclipse, and we can come back to that, but you had a very interesting eclipse story, and I'd love to hear any of your thoughts or experiences surrounding it. Sure. So I knew about the eclipse years ago, and it kind of snuck up on me in the sense that I kept telling myself, oh, I got to get my act together. I got to make a real plan. I got to go see the eclipse. I knew I wasn't going to miss it, but I didn't really make a plan until like July. And the eclipse was on August 21st. So once I realized that it was time to get serious about it, I also kind of got serious about whether I wanted to use it as a kind of a research or reporting opportunity. So some of your guests may know that I make a podcast called Soonish. And it's all about the future and about how we deal with change and innovation. And so there's a heavy kind of science and technology angle to it. And the eclipse was basically a giant science show. It's sort of like getting out of the planetarium and looking up at the sky and seeing how the heavens actually work right in front of your eyes. That was something I didn't want to miss. I wanted to be in a place where I could be around other people and collect their impressions, how it was impacting them. And I just wanted to record my own impressions and just have the tape rolling while I was there witnessing the thing. So I basically got serious about planning this all out and rented a car and planned a big road trip out to southern Illinois. So I basically drove from Boston across New York, Pennsylvania, Ohio, Indiana, and down into Illinois, and then went back via a more southern route through Kentucky and West Virginia and Pennsylvania, and stopped at a few places along the way and wound up gathering enough material to make what will turn out to be a sort of three-part episode that's really more about the eclipse as a moment in our American sort of life right now. So the episode that will have come out by the time your episode comes out is basically sort of about the eclipse, but the eclipse figures more as like an epiphany or a respite or a resolution. The episode isn't really about eclipse science or astronomy per se. It's really about what it means to be able to step aside from the tumult and the morass of current day politics for a few minutes and kind of remind yourself that you're part of something much bigger. I really appreciate the phrasing there, and that's precisely what I wanted to tackle in this conversation because I've thought a lot about the eclipse as a natural event which depoliticizes some of the current dialogue or at least our interactions with other Americans. And you and I are recording at a very interesting time on the 9th of September during Hurricane Irma down in Florida and the southern part of the United States. And I mention Irma, as I would also mention Harvey and other large natural phenomena like the solar eclipse, because I think there is an interesting byproduct when human beings encounter nature or natural events and phenomena that are larger than themselves. And I think a lot of American culture right now is very individualized and personal, which isn't necessarily a bad thing, but as you phrased it, Being aware that we are part of something larger, I think, is a healthy and important reminder. 
And I do sincerely wonder if, as a national collective in 2017, we need larger events like that to bring us together. And I recognize the idealist in me recognizes that we are all different in this country, and disagreements may persist. But I was really awestruck, despite my lack of participation in the eclipse, at how many people came together. And as you said, for that moment in time, those several moments. Didn't seem to care about the affiliations or backgrounds or identities, in a sense, of their fellow Americans. It was about the shared experience. And I also think our recording on September 9th is intriguing because two days from now, on the anniversary of 9/11, I also recall a national coming together, though for different reasons, of course, than the eclipse. And I'm not saying any of these events are necessarily linked, except for. The fact that I, as a young American, don't observe many events where we feel or manifest a collective American identity, and that may not be necessary. And indeed, I have a bias against larger expressions of nationalist identity because I think there is danger there. But I still think it's important for people to cross their perceived borders from time to time. I do think that natural events like eclipses and on the negative side, you know, earthquakes and hurricanes and terrorist attacks can bring us together. And in a more sort of uplifting sense, I definitely saw some of that in Macanda, Illinois, where I was stationed to see the eclipse. Frankly, part of the reason I wanted to go and take my recorder was to see how people would react. What was remarkable walking around that day? It struck me that people were almost sort of half out of their minds. I don't mean to say they were acting insane or irrationally. I just mean that the event was so extraordinary and so kind of once in a lifetime that people were walking around in a daze, and it was like the normal rules of everyday life and everyday interactions had sort of been suspended. Everyone had a big smile. Everyone was a little bit disinhibited. Everyone was super friendly, and it's kind of paradoxical. But I have read and, to some extent, experienced the same thing during genuine disasters. There's actually an amazing book. By Rebecca Solnit called "A Paradise Built in Hell," which is all about basically the 1906 earthquake in San Francisco. That's the inciting incident in the book, anyway. And Rebecca Solnit builds an argument around how natural disasters do actually have an ability to bring people together in a sense of shared crisis, but also a weird kind of solidarity. And the whole book kind of tries to spin out this interpretation of what's actually going on culturally and psychologically in the aftermath of a big crisis like that. And how it is that people suddenly become sort of more generous and more selfless during the aftermath of an event like that than they would be in their normal lives. I guess the paradise built in hell reference is trying to evoke that because it turned out that in San Francisco, in the immediate days after the 1906 earthquake, some people showed extraordinary generosity in opening up their mess halls or their restaurants, giving out free food, setting up tent cities. Making sure that the people who survived the earthquake and the fire actually had a place to sleep and a place to eat, and that kind of feeling gradually wears off eventually, inevitably. And after it all passed, I think, according to Solnit's research, people looked back on it and said, "Gosh, that was amazing! You know, how did that happen? Why can't we think more like that all the time?" So I think the eclipse was an experience like that, very much in miniature. The eclipse itself only lasted for like two and a half minutes. Two minutes and forty-one seconds, where I was. That's not very long, but the build-up to it, you know, lasted all day. And then afterwards, there was this like just amazing sort of after aura, and everyone was walking around just amazed at what they had seen. It was sort of like halfway between a carnival 
and a disaster in a sense. And I think it would be unfortunate if it required a disaster or if it required an astronomical event like an eclipse to make people stop and kind of get past the normal everyday frictions and suspicions and barriers that separate us. But sometimes it seems like it does. And I think that's food for thought. I agree that it absolutely would be a shame if we as people required events like that. And I also think, which we shouldn't diminish or overlook in any way, the science of the eclipse is part of its appeal. I don't know that everyone who enjoyed the event necessarily appreciated the scientific elements which explain its occurrence, which in millennia past, I'm sure, would be described through all sorts of phenomena and language that were probably far less scientific. And as someone who has a great deal of scientific knowledge, I'd love it if you would explain how the eclipse worked and why it is such a spectacular and unique scientific phenomenon. I think that most of the sort of impact of an eclipse has very little to do with the science of it. What people are feeling when they are witnessing an eclipse, and I now can say this from experience, is this unbelievable event is happening in front of you, something that you may never have seen in your life, something that is so out of the ordinary, so alien, is happening up in the sky. The sun is still there, but it's gradually being covered by this thing that you couldn't see because the moon is moving in front of the sun, but it's so close to the sun before and after the eclipse that it's invisible. So it's not like you can see the moon kind of creeping up on the sun. It's the sun just gradually disappearing. And suddenly there's this black hole in the sky the center of the eclipse during totality is obviously it's the moon and it's a blacker black than all of the sky around it. And then that blackness is surrounded by the corona of the sun, which is actually moving slowly. You can actually see it kind of undulating, which is incredible. And during that moment, what you're looking at is like a black hole in the middle of the sky. And it's so unlike anything that I think most people have ever seen that they just go a little crazy. And I think there's probably some sort of deep biological response being evoked there. Our species evolved on this planet, and we're used to seeing the sun and the moon and the stars. But what we're not used to seeing is the sun disappearing from the sky for a few minutes. And even though that happens on the average, like once a year, somewhere around the globe, most people have never seen one. And if they're lucky enough to see it, it only happened once in their lives. So it's rare enough that I don't think it's really part of our species memory. And when it happens, I think we react the same way we would have if we were primates on the African savanna. It's like, oh my God, what's happening is the world coming to an end. We can't help feel those kinds of feelings, even if we know what's going on from an astronomical perspective. So, okay, you asked what is actually going on. It's very simple. We happen to live on a planet that has one satellite, and that satellite happens to be exactly the right size and the right distance away from us that on occasion when it passes between us and the sun, it is exactly the right size to cover up the disk of the sun. And sometimes there are annular eclipses where the moon's a little bit too close and you can still see a little ring of the sun around the moon. But during a, you know, an ideal total eclipse, the moon is at the right distance, so it exactly covers the sun. So you get that effect of the black hole in the middle and then the corona around it. And it lasts anywhere from sort of like two minutes up to six or seven minutes, depending on the exact sort of position of the earth, the moon, and the sun. So as I said, eclipses happen roughly once a year somewhere on the globe. But since two-thirds of the earth is ocean, most eclipses go unwitnessed because there's nobody out there unless you have a yacht or a plane. So 
every once in a while we get lucky and the path of totality will fall across a populated area. And the eclipse that we just experienced on August 21st was probably the best one ever in North America, at least the best one since North America has been densely populated because the path crossed from the Pacific Ocean onto land somewhere around Salem, Oregon, and then went from sort of northwest to southeast across the whole country and left the continent around Charleston, South Carolina. And so what I read was that basically there were 40 million people who were within an hour or two's driving distance of that path, and the eclipse was probably witnessed by more people than any other eclipse ever. So it was a great opportunity for lots of people who have never seen an eclipse to get into the zone and see it. And it was a great opportunity for science teachers to kind of explain what's going on and remind people that the earth revolves around the sun, that the moon revolves around the earth, and that once in a while everything lines up so that you can have an experience like this. It's just orbital mechanics. There's really nothing extraordinary about it. There's nothing special happening on the moon or the sun other than that they're all lining up. But it's rare enough that it's unusual, it's special, and I have to tell you that before August 21st, I had certainly heard people telling stories about their own eclipse sightings. I had met people who have turned into eclipse chasers and who make a point of trying to see as many eclipses as they can and traveling around the world to see them. And I didn't really get it. I was like, okay, that sounds interesting, but that's a lot of trouble to go to, a lot of trouble and expense to travel to Australia or you know Africa or wherever to see the next eclipse. And now I totally get it. I'm like, okay, where's the next eclipse? I'm going. Because that experience was like so mesmerizing and so cosmic that now I feel like I can't get enough. And I totally understand why people turn into eclipse chasers. The next eclipse actually crosses North America in 2024. It's very unusual to have two total eclipses so close. So people who were not fortunate enough to see it this year will have another chance just seven years from now. And the path will actually cross a little closer to the Boston area in 2024. So people who live here, it'll be a little easier for them to go and see it. There's a lot that I really love in your response there, particularly the fact that though I had mentioned science, the descriptions of awe and delight to me were the most prominent in your reply. And I think that says something to our human ability to perceive natural or occasionally rare and seemingly unnatural phenomena as something spectacular. And of course, in this case, the eclipse is very natural. But to me, treating the eclipse as something metaphorical, I would point to your mention of primates on the savannah who might have perceived the event as something cataclysmic. And I'd even heard stories from some people that animals in the path of totality were incredibly confused and perceived the event as a brief nighttime, not knowing how to behave or act. And I think in many ways this eclipse fell during a year when we as human beings, who are indeed very capable, but in many senses still animal, in our evolutionary history, are similarly confused by our circumstances and might perceive them as wholly unrealistic and unprecedented. But I would make the suggestion, as indeed I haven't experienced all of human history, that a lot of the confusion, despair, etc. that many Americans are currently experiencing has a root in human history and at the very least can be solved by natural phenomena, I would say conversation being one of them. And what I also really appreciated in your reply is that you referred to eclipse chasers as people that you hadn't previously understood, who had an experience that seemed interesting to you, but not necessarily engrossing or all-encompassing in a way that they obviously thoroughly feel. 
But after experiencing the eclipse, you can come to a greater place of empathy and ability to understand them, which again, at the risk of making a leap, I think speaks to the beauty of sharing experiences with other people or attempting to pursue similar experiences. Not that we will see the world through their eyes, but might come closer to their perspective. And I definitely think there's something incredibly poetic and powerful about the fact that millions of Americans were all looking at the same thing at the same time, knowing, or at least I hope knowing, that the world still spins, that we all have the capacity to predict and observe miraculous scientific events like this, and by miraculous I don't mean inexplicable, and although I did not participate in said viewing, I do love that many people did, and also that for as brief as it was, there was so much emotion packed into the country at that one time, emotion I'd like to think is a combination of awe, joy, delight, and so many other positive and wondrous feelings that I also hope inspired some people in our country to wonder about the stars and what lies beyond our planet, and maybe even for a moment where we as people stand in the universe and what elements of our lives truly matter. I'm not so idealistic to think that this event was existential for everyone, but I suspect that of the millions who viewed it, there were certain moments of change or calibration of perspective, if you will. Before the eclipse, people were circulating a great piece that Annie Dillard had written for The Atlantic back in the 70s, I think, after an eclipse. I think there was a big eclipse in 1979, and this was a reaction to that. I might have the details wrong, but it's a wonderful piece. And one memorable thing that Annie said in that piece, if you see an eclipse, you will scream. You will kind of lose control. You won't realize it, but you're reverting in a way to your instincts and you're reacting in a very raw and unguarded way to this incredible thing happening in the heavens in front of you. I read that and I said, oh, all right. You know, I don't think I would scream, but I'll take your word for it since I haven't seen an eclipse. So again, now that I've seen an eclipse, I totally get it because I screamed. I spent the whole time kind of just babbling and so did everyone else. So it's the kind of thing where it's like a virus that you have to be exposed to it to catch it. And now that I've caught it, I feel like I could totally get on board with the eclipse chasing thing and plan future trips around eclipses because it's the kind of hit, if you will, that can act almost like a drug. I mean, it's kind of interesting to speculate about what's going on in your brain biochemically when you're going through such an unusual event. I'll bet you if you measured sort of adrenaline and serotonin and other neurotransmitter levels in the brain during that event, you would see that people are kind of going crazy in a way, that people are having a quite unusual kind of fringe experience. And so I get now why people want to pursue and repeat that experience. It's almost like a natural drug. So I think it'd be really interesting to follow up after the August eclipse and see whether there's any sort of lasting impact on the people who saw it. Millions of people did witness it. So it wouldn't be that hard to go out and start tracking how people self-reported that experience on the day of the eclipse and what their memories of it are two weeks later, four weeks later, a year later. How does it fit into their view of the world? Was it just a blip or did it change something fundamental for people? How many of those people are going to turn into eclipse chasers? How many kids, having seen something like that, will now think more seriously about what it means to live on a small and fragile planet in a universe that's much bigger than us? How many of them will think about going into science and technology and engineering and math? 
what interested me was just being able to go to a place where I would be among other people. I could record my reactions and their reactions and also try to interpret it in the setting that we're in these days. I remember reading stories about comets, kind of another unusual celestial event. Comets are also predictable, but they're even rarer than eclipses. Past comets, when they show up at auspicious or inauspicious moments, have been interpreted as signs from the heavens that our world is falling into chaos. Sometimes they show up in the middle of a war or battle, and people assume that the comet is a portent of one side or the other winning or losing. It's really easy for us to weave these stories into our, our own narratives and to try and kind of interpret human events in light of what's going on in the heavens. And so these cosmic happenings wind up being interpreted in different ways. In the same way that a comet can be seen as a portent of something good or bad to come, I think an eclipse can leave a lasting impression and can jar you so far out of your normal sort of path and your normal interactions that I think it's probably the kind of thing that for a lot of people will stick with them and be a touchstone of a sort. I hope it becomes something like a touchstone because Lord knows we need something solid to hang on to right now. (laughs) This is a chaotic time. We are living through one of the strangest periods of American history that I can recall in my lifetime, perhaps one of the strangest periods in our nation's entire biography. It does feel like everything's up for grabs. So when something like this comes along at a very opportune time in a way and helps us either come together or just take a break from what's going on around us, it turned out to be really good timing. <laughs> and I didn't want to miss it, which is you know why I went on this road trip and tried to get all the tape I could. I'm really happy that you mentioned the timing because the practicality of the event is something that journalists and other folks who have written on the eclipse noted, as you did, that many Americans lived within an hour or a traveling distance of the path of totality. Furthermore, the fact that the event occurred during the summer when kids are out of school and folks are more liable to traveling, I think also increases the likelihood that people would and did in fact witness this event. And I also really appreciate the nod to comets and other celestial events as they have been witnessed and integrated into human and historical narratives throughout our past. Because that's certainly what I've done to an extent by treating the eclipse as a metaphor for our current political and societal climate when, in reality, this is a celestial event which has no real bearing on the planet Earth, and the two or three celestial bodies involved, though they orbit and move with gravitational relationship to one another, emotionally speaking, they couldn't care less and do not interact in that way, and I'm cognizant of the fact that I am interpreting this event as a certain lens or metaphor through which to view the current world But I'm also intrigued by the possibility that other Americans or people around the world may have viewed the eclipse differently. There may very well be someone out there who says the world is in a state of turmoil or tumult, and this eclipse was a final sign or an ultimate marker that we are in a downward trajectory. And while I wouldn't personally agree with them, I do find it fascinating that a single event, which occurs in relatively similar patterns for all people who observe it, could be interpreted in many different ways. And there's something beautiful there to me as well because of the diversity of human perception and experience. Yeah, I think thanks to the internet, individual communities of belief can form and grow much faster than before. So it's easy for people like Flat Earthers to come together on our networks and share information and 
spread misinformation and an event like an eclipse inevitably is going to be interpreted by certain fringe groups as, you know, a sign of the end times or whatever. And the internet amplifies all of that. I think that's all happening pretty much on the far fringes of our society, though. I think most people have a decent grasp of the reality that we live in a solar system that was defined by Copernicus and Kepler and Newton and Galileo. And they understand that you're right. What's going on during an eclipse is the effect of completely impersonal forces. That doesn't mean that the event itself isn't meaningful to us as humans, but we're creating that meaning from our own hearts and our own spirits, if you will. Now, going back to the timing, I think it kind of was perfect timing in the sense of, yeah, it's like you couldn't have arranged a better sort of end of everyone's summer vacation, which was kind of awesome. But the flip side of that is that the eclipse happened on August 21st, which was about nine days after the events in Charlottesville, where, as everyone knows, a group of white nationalists and neo-Nazis had gathered to protest the removal of a statue of Robert E. Lee on Friday, August 11th. And then the following day, Saturday the 12th, one of the marchers got in a car and rammed into a crowd and wound up killing one of the counter-protesters. And that story and the reaction to it was still roiling the following week when the weekend of the eclipse came around. And it was definitely on my mind as I got in my car and started driving across the country to find out what I could find out and to experience the eclipse. And for me, the whole timing of the eclipse was quite, I don't know what the right word for it is, but the road trip gave me a chance since I was in the car for like 18 hours each way to really think deeply about this moment that we're living through and to listen to a few audiobooks that I've been meaning to listen to, like Ta-Nehisi Coates, Between the World and Me, like Hillbilly Elegy, books that have been on people's minds as different lenses on the experience that we're living through and sort of the deep divisions and unsolved problems and neglected problems that kind of define our country right now. I was thinking about that stuff. I was also listening to Killer Angels, the Michael Shara sort of historical novel about the Battle of Gettysburg, thinking about that event and how it defined the course of the Civil War, knowing that I was going to wind up visiting Gettysburg. So I had all these thoughts swirling in my head, and it all plays out in a very specific way in the podcast episode that I'm producing right now. So you're catching me at a good moment. For me, the eclipse wound up being a focusing moment, a defining moment, a moment when even in the midst of all of this anger and division, we were forced for a couple of minutes to just remember we're just humans, that our society is set up in ways that we have to continue to work on. I guess all I really want to try and say is the trip wound up being really meaningful for me, not just because I was able to go to places like Gettysburg and talk to real people about what we're living through right now, but because it also included as a kind of major stop and as like the climax of the trip, this experience of the eclipse itself, which lifted me and everyone around me and everyone across the country out of our current circumstances and gave us a reason to remember it's not just about us. We are these incredibly insignificant and powerless beings on this tiny little speck of of a planet that is subject to all of these amazing forces around us. Yet at the same time, we're also sentient specs, and we can actually look up at the sky and figure out what's going on and make meaning from it. That is miraculous in the sense of not unexplained, right? But just amazing. (laughs) And how often do we get reminded of that? For good or ill, it takes something like an eclipse to knock us out of our everyday thinking. I wish it was easier to access that kind of awe. Sometimes it can happen through fiction or through movies or music or art. Sometimes it can happen just by going out into your backyard at night and looking up at the stars. 
But an eclipse is just so weird, so out of the ordinary, and so extraordinary that it automatically has that effect. So I guess I'm glad they don't happen every week because they would just become passe. But I do wish that everyone had the opportunity to experience them. So it was great that so many people did have the opportunity to experience this one. And if I could just give the gift of an eclipse to everyone else who didn't make it to the eclipse this time, I think that would be a pretty impactful thing. That was very well said. And in reference to your point about our insignificance and powerlessness, I absolutely concur that we are, as people, I think, distinctly powerless and yet incredibly capable of a great number of things. And that's where I find my optimism for humanity, as it were. And though you just shared a lot of what you're thinking about and want to leave the audience with, are there any last thoughts you would like them to consider? after listening to this discussion. Well, sure. One of them is just that there's another solar eclipse coming up on April 8th, 2024. The path of the totality will cross roughly from the Pacific coast of Mexico up to Montreal and Nova Scotia. And so a lot of people will have the opportunity to see an eclipse again. Interestingly, I was in Carbondale. I was south of Carbondale, Illinois, in Macanda, Illinois, for this eclipse. And that turns out to be the one place in North America that will also be in the path of the 2024 eclipse. So Carbondale has sort of more or less become like Eclipse City. And I'm thinking about going back there because I had a great time. But the eclipse will also pass through upstate New York, the northern tip of Vermont, and then southern Quebec and Montreal. So people who live in Boston or New York or Detroit or Cleveland or Toledo will also be able to get to see it fairly easily. It's not too soon to start thinking about how you can arrange to be there in seven years. You know, the temperament of our current president is such that the news cycle is driven by whatever he says or does on a daily basis or whatever he tweets. And so it's impossible to know what we're going to be arguing about tomorrow, let alone next week or next year. If we are all still here a year from now (laughs) and we haven't been destroyed by hurricanes or North Korean missiles or whatever, I think we may look back on the eclipse as a moment when we were able to step back to perhaps a center, a place of calm, something we certainly haven't experienced since before the 2016 election, given that the tumult has been continuous and uninterrupted and exhausting. Maybe the memory of the eclipse can be a centering thing, maybe a little meditative even, a thing that we can grab onto and use it to remind ourselves that no matter how much chaos is happening around us, there is this larger reality. We're residents of this amazing planet that, as far as we know, is the only place that can support life. And we're not just sort of passengers on that planet anymore. We're kind of in charge of it now by virtue of our technology and our industry and our emissions. For better or worse, we're the gardeners of planet Earth. We've got to work together in much more coordinated ways if we're going to get better at that job. And we've got to get better at it really fast because we don't have infinite amounts of time to figure out how we're going to slow down global warming and head off other potential catastrophes. And I think that coming back to the eclipse one more time, that's the kind of event that can remind us that it's not inconceivable that we can come together and work together in a much more coordinated and harmonious way to accomplish the things that we have to accomplish. And I don't know, it's, it's quixotic and probably silly, irrational hope, but that is the kind of optimism somehow that I'm left with after seeing that kind of event. And I hope to be able to hang on to that feeling 
It's the first thing since the Trump era began that has made me be able to rise above the daily hubbub of the news and not wake up every morning and just feel like, how are we going to survive this? Somehow, it was the first piece of good news, even though it wasn't really even news. It was just like a celestial event. It was still the first thing that helped me step aside from all that and remember that there is a bigger picture here. I don't know whether it's going to have a similar effect for other people, but I hope it does. And I think that there's that possibility. I certainly agree. And if you wouldn't mind, I'd love the audience to hear from the creator a bit about the philosophy and storytelling behind Soonish. Sure. Thanks for asking. As we go into season two, I am able to look back on the episodes I made in the first season. I made about 10 episodes in season one, and that gave me enough material to work with that I was able to, first of all, sort of just find my sea legs as a podcaster, but also to think through what the show is really about and what I'm trying to do with it. So in the second season, in big and small ways, I think I'm changing things up a little bit. I'm getting a little more focused about how I describe the show. I have a new motto for one thing, and the motto is very simple. The future is shaped by technology, but technology is shaped by us. So the meaning behind that motto is just that we should remember that we all have the power to decide in our daily lives which technologies we're going to adopt and which ones we're going to avoid. So it's really the collective impact of all of those decisions that guides which directions technology goes in. It's on each of us to kind of figure out what we think about technology. And what I'm trying to do with the show is just to tell stories that are both sort of hopefully entertaining and instructive and that will give people a little bit of context about new technologies that are coming down the pike that will probably be available to us in the near future and how those might affect us. And that'll help each of us decide whether we want to use those technologies in our own daily lives. And the way I like to do that in practice is to just go out and find the smartest people I can find, scientists, engineers, entrepreneurs, programmers, even artists sometimes, and ask them what they're working on and what new technologies they're coming up with and how those technologies will play out in the real world. As often as I can, I go to real places. I go to laboratories. I go to communities. I talk to real people doing real jobs and try and bring those stories back and form them into something that will help the listener. The wonderful thing about audio and podcasting is that it's a In a way, a passive medium, you can be listening to the show and deeply engaged in your mind while you're also doing something else. So I just like the idea that somebody might be listening to Soonish while they're out running or commuting or doing the dishes and also being drawn into this deeper group discussion about how we really should live in the future. And in the bigger picture, the more informed we are about what's happening, what kinds of innovations are coming down the road in the near future, the better equipped we'll be to make our own decisions. And to our audience, we will, of course, include links to Wade's show that we encourage you to check out. And as always, Wade, it's a pleasure to talk to you. And I appreciate you coming on and sharing your thoughts and eloquence today. Thanks, Kip. It's always a pleasure. And as always, you give me more to think about than I can possibly respond to. (laughs) So it's always really thought-provoking and always fun to join you. And I appreciate your patience with me there. But of course, as ever, we'd like this to be a conversation among, not simply a conversation between. Ours are only two voices, and it sounds like millions of you have seen the eclipse, and we'd love to hear from you. So if you have any opinions, feedback, or thoughts, please reach out to us. You can connect with us via Twitter or Facebook. You can also email us via strideandsaunter at gmail.com. And if you enjoyed the show, consider subscribing and sharing it with a friend you think might also enjoy it. And as always, we thank you very much for listening. And from thought to word and voice to ear, this is Kip Clark signing off.